Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania, proclaiming the historic faith and the uncompromising grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, check out our website, graceanglicanonline.com. Lord, lift up me that I might lift up thee. Amen. I want to speak tonight about making a dynamic discovery, one that causes us to think new thoughts and feel new emotions and walk in a different kind of way. There have been many of these dynamic discoveries in history, discoveries that had a nearly universal quality and effect. I think about Copernicus, who did all of the dreaming and the research to discover a heliocentric solar system. And I think about Gutenberg, who believed that if you arranged uh, metal letters along a little metal bar and then you were able to press it down into ink and then press it onto paper, that you could spread knowledge uh, throughout the world. One of the reasons the Reformation got as far as it did in terms of its influence was because of Gutenberg, who unwittingly, in some ways, changed the world. And you think of Newton sitting under the apple tree. I don't know if that happened, but let's imagine that happened, and he got hit on the head with an apple, and then it caused him to think in new ways about gravity. Dynamic discoveries that shaped history, but our own personal histories have been shaped by individual dynamic discoveries. Maybe you've had that happen. You had some inner awakening, some epiphany that caused you to view life very, very differently. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that um, you've discovered in your later years painting or writing uh, or singing, and it's caused you to come alive inside, that some new part of you is thriving. Uh, uh, Maybe it's the first time somebody told you in a romantic way, I love you. And you had never heard that before, not in that way. And all of a sudden it makes you feel like a worthwhile person. And you're now viewing the world differently. And it's sort of like singing in the rain because you had this dynamic discovery within. Well, in tonight's uh, parables, uh, Jesus talks about a dynamic discovery that he calls the kingdom of heaven, sometimes calls it the kingdom of God. Uh, The neural pathways of Jesus of Nazareth pulsed with this idea called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God uh, means that there is a a dimension in which everything is healthy and everything is made complete and sick people discover new health and dead people live again and uh, people that are twisted up on the inside because of all sorts of evil are brought to a greater place of spiritual wellness, and that this kingdom of God is coming into the world through him, that Jesus was going to be the locus of this kingdom and was going to bring it about so that everybody uh, who trusted in him could enjoy something better than what we have now. And so here he comes teaching about this uh, kingdom. And I want to focus tonight on the first two parables. There were three that were read, but I want to focus on the first two because they're similar, and they are what I call parables of discovery. 
the first is the treasure which is hidden in a field and the second is the pearl of great price and there are three themes in these two parables that i'd like us to consider uh, tonight but before that let me read the passage again for us the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field which a man found and covered up then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it three themes the first theme is what i would call hiddenness these valued items representing the kingdom of heaven uh, are not immediately perceivable. They're not already in the possession of these stories' protagonists. The, the Greek word uh, for hidden is kekrimino, uh, and, um, and it means something like imperceptible something that can be tangibly imperceptible, but also mindfully imperceptible. Jesus uses this language about the cities who reject him in Matthew 11, when he says uh, to some in the audience who began to understand him, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to children. Uh, something about his clear communication was lost on the majority of his audience but certain people who were not terribly impressive in the world's eyes received something good out of it but there was hiddenness there for others later though uh, in luke 18 toward the end of jesus life when jesus predicts his death it says this the 12 did not understand any of these things that is his death and resurrection and this word was hidden and so this theme of hiddenness is present in Jesus' ministry, but it's especially present in his parables. Ideas of smallness, imperceptibility, that the kingdom on earth begins in such a way that we might not even notice it, because it comes like seed that a farmer throws onto the ground. It arrives like a mustard seed, which Jesus calls the smallest of all seeds. It comes to us like leaven. Uh, uh, smushed into the dough so that it um, has an effect over the whole lump. Uh, the kingdom comes in subtly, strangely, and this is com a complete contrast to what we read in the Old Testament. God's activity in the Old Testament, it is many things, but subtle it ain't. At least most of the time, if God wants to communicate with a group of people, he creates manna from heaven, parts the sea, and he creates a visible pillar of fire. But here, something different is happening. The kingdom comes in in an almost imperceptible way. You know, if the History Channel existed in the second century, by the way, if you want to know who the biggest fan is of the History Channel, at least in this room, it's Andrew Mitchell. Uh, he really believes that the History Channel is very accurate and, uh, and communicates great and, um, and well-tempered truths. Sarcasm. If the History Channel existed in the second century and did an expose on the major events within the first century, uh, it would surely cover many things. It would cover how the Roman uh, Republic became the Roman Empire. It might talk about how the, how the Han Dynasty ended in China. It 
might have mentioned the fact that lions became extinct in Western Europe. This program could have talked about Goths settling in Poland, but I guarantee you that from a, from a historian's perspective living in the second century, they would certainly not talk about a contractor turned prophet who had a three-year-long ministry in the middle of Harrisville, or its rough equivalent in the Middle East. A man who had a very difficult life and who was, it seems, a very kind person, but also a contrarian who uh, died before his time and who ended up um, bleeding on a scaffold. And yet, we believe that all of history turns on the scaffolding of the cross. So that's the first theme in these parables, hiddenness, that there's a treasure hidden in a field. But the second theme is exuberance, exuberance. Uh, when these individuals discovered this valued item, uh, the, the field wanderer and the pearl expert do something uh, similar. They decide to sell everything they've got and purchase in one case, the field containing the item, and in the other case, just the item itself. I want to say that their exuberance gives rise to profound irresponsibility. Profound irresponsibility, at least from a worldly perspective. I mean, give me a break. Can you imagine what their mothers would say? They're, uh, really? Or like, are you crazy? You're going to sell your house. You're getting rid of your cars. Your 401k has been cashed in. Your timeshare in Boca, the one vacation a year that you get, you're not going to go. And what about all the comforts? Everything that you've worked so hard for, you're going to give it, you're going to sell it all so that you can buy a trinket without much utility. Really. And yet, the, this discovery, you see, meant the world to these men. Uh, this discovery meant more than all the trinkets and comforts uh, and niceties of life. So they accepted the affliction that would come because of this superior possession. They were willing to have every other aspect of their life affected directly so they could have the one thing. Because the one thing was more important than everything else put together. They discovered in this one object a greater love which changed their lives permanently. And there are two brothers that I want to tell you about because the same thing happened to them. And some of you know them, and some of you won't. And for some of you, this will be a new story, and others not, but it's a story worth repeating. And they are John and Charles Wesley, uh, brothers from yesteryear in the Church of England who decided, in large part because of their uh, um, velvet hammer of a mother, that they should go into public ministry. And so John and Charles enter the Anglican uh, priesthood. And John Wesley uh, feels that he would be serving the church well if he were a missionary to the United States. And let me just tell you, not brilliant. It did not go well. Uh, he was an awkward man. Back then, he was not a great preacher. And he was terrible with women, at least one particular woman. He was in love with this young woman who was attending his parish. She did not feel the same way. And on one Saturday afternoon, she agreed to marry 
some other man in the parish. John found out about this at the communion rail when he was giving all of those kneeling before him Holy Communion. Saw what had happened because of the ring on her finger and skipped her and went on down the line. Excommunicated the love of his life. The bishop was not happy with this situation and essentially said John had to um, resign. And he did. And he goes back to London a broken and publicly shamed man. And he writes in his journal these lines. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? And then one night, walking the streets of London, uh, he wandered into a meeting house where some pietist Christians were gathered for prayer, and this is what he writes. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one man was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, you know it? I felt my heart strangely warmed. He discovered a pearl of great price, a treasure hidden in a field. And do you know what occurred? He, from that moment on, devoted himself to traveling the countryside of England 4,000 miles a year, a year on horseback, preaching over 40,000 sermons because he was possessed by the power of a new affection. Then there was his brother, Chuck, no, Charles, <laughs> Charles Wesley, an Anglican minister, also a, a fairly jaded and failed man. He was at one point in the midst of that failure very, very ill and near death, and there was a, a German um, pastor named Peter Berler who was with him and told Charles, I have prayed for you and you will not die. But if you were to die, how do you hope to be saved? And Charles responded, I hope to be saved, for I have used my best endeavors to serve God. And Burler, tears rolling down his cheeks, said, That philosophy of yours must be purged away. He had yet to understand that the love must precede the labor. He had yet to understand that God justifies sinners apart from the works of the law and is received only by naked trust or what we call faith. But when he did understand that, he began to write sermons, yes, but mostly hymns. He had never written a hymn before that moment. After that moment, people debate. He wrote between 6,500 and 9,000 hymns, including half of the ones we sing at Christmas. Imagine how impoverished your Christmas would be without Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You have Charles to thank for that, and you have Peter Burler to thank for that, and behind him you have Jesus Christ to thank for that. Because he was saved by the power of a new affection. 
Both John and Charles were filled with exuberance because they found the kingdom of heaven, or put another way, the kingdom of heaven found them. And so we see exuberance. Theme three, variety. The man who was wandering through farm country, remember, he didn't own the farm. We don't know that this is a landowning man. It's somebody who happened to notice some treasure and rather scandalously hid it <laughs> so that he could then purchase the field. Uh, so he's, you know, there's something shady going on there too, but, you know, he is a man who never expected that this would ever occur to him, right? He wasn't looking for anything. But then by contrast, you have a, a, a pearl merchant. Let's just say pearl merchants, not the lower class. And he has been looking all his life for pearls of great quality and found it. This is somebody who we could say is a seeker. The first was not a seeker, the second is. And we see this kind of variety in the New Testament. Think about Cornelius. I mean, he was this Roman centurion, but he was a monotheist, rejecting the paganism of his contemporaries. And he was this religious searcher who was very interested in the God of Israel. But Peter comes to his house after Peter has a reckoning that Gentiles, now that Christ has died and has risen, are welcome into the kingdom. And, and Peter goes to his house, and Cornelius is baptized and believes. But he's seeking after something. Then you have Matthew. And we don't know a lot about his character, but he was a tax collector, and we know that they weren't held in terribly high esteem because they made their lives as mafia men who skimmed off the top and ruined a lot of families, ruined a lot of people's lives. And here's Matthew minding his own business, counting his money, and this carpenter rabbi shows up and says, follow me. doesn't seem like he was doing a whole lot of seeking that we know of. He was just sitting counting the money. But Jesus comes to him. Uh, it's to say that how we come into close contact with the gospel, how, that is, how we have that experience personally, it might differ with the person that's sitting right next to you or right in front of you. And we have to, uh, to quote Thomas Merton, let God be God. We have to understand that God is going to do things his way and will save people his own way. Uh, I have friends who have made that same discovery of the gospel, but through various means. I have a friend who was at a court-ordered Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and he was an atheist, but he, he heard the first step of AA about powerlessness and said, that's me, and if I'm ever to be helped, I need an external source of power because I don't have enough will and strength to get through this alive. And so he discovered Christ in the midst of an AA meeting. So he wasn't a seeker before that. And then there, is, there are other people who you know, spend a lot of time reading Tim Keller because they want to know what's going on. And they discover something marvelous. And so we have variety in terms of how this discovery is discovered. Hiddenness, exuberance, and variety. And these two parables point to a dynamic discovery, which is not just for pretend people in a, in a story, but a dynamic discovery which we ourselves can have, and really must have, if we are to be helped at the deepest level. And uh, this dynamic discovery is one that can free us 
from all other lesser kingdoms in which we've been searching for what we really need. And how many times do we do this? How many times do I do this? Trudging through all these little tin kingdoms, looking for the Holy Grail, looking for life's silver bullet, looking for the thing that is really going to complete me and help me to sleep better at night and help me to understand where I'm going and what I'm doing. We do this, right? So we, we belong to all these other lesser kingdoms, tin kingdoms, like the kingdom of Pinterest. The king, I mean, some people believe and really spend a lot of energy in the kingdom of Pinterest. They live in this realm, this idealized realm of creative perfection, that if I fill a home with all sorts of do-it-yourself projects with great color schemes, my life will have reached the apex of fulfillment. For some people, it's the kingdom of security. That is, having the sense that I really do have power over various spheres, and that power gives me a sense of solidity, safety, security. Um, this is when we seek to control people and ideas and conversations uh, so that we feel at ease, even manipulating other people in situations so that we can feel at ease, the kingdom of security. Or the kingdom of criticism. Scrutiny can really get your blood pumping. You know, there's always somebody in the world who we're out of sorts with and we disagree with strongly, and we feel the need to tell a lot of people, expiate a little sin, get it out there. We'll feel better when we do, except when we don't. If only this person would have lived their life differently, would have made the decisions that I made. Uh, if only that church wouldn't be so dreadful in these three areas, and I'm going to tell everybody about them except the minister. Or there's somebody who is sitting eight rows back in this church, and I'm not going to talk to them because they hurt me or they hurt somebody I love, and I'm just going to pretend and act as if they don't exist. And since I've been so hurt by this person, I think that particular sin is justified. My hurt justifies my behavior. Or maybe it's the kingdom of faddishness. This is where we think that spiritual satisfaction is found in 200-proof form somewhere, if we can just find that somewhere. And so we go through all these various spiritual phases. Maybe you've been through them too. I've been through a few of these. Like you go through a Pentecostal phase because you want to feel alive inside, and they, they seem really lively, you know. There's a lot going on. Or maybe you go, and then you go through a Presbyterian phase because you say, you know what, I need to get serious about this doctrine thing. I got to figure this thing out. See, I know, I know. Oh, I'm going to insult the Anglican suit, don't worry. Uh, then you get to the Joel Osteen phase, not just because he has great teeth and hair, but because you want to feel good about yourself. And, and he helps, you know, he really helps. Or, or there's like a Rob Bell phase when you're feeling kind of hipster and half evangelical. I mean, that's fun. Uh, or, and, and, or maybe there's like this Catholic phase because you want some sense of solid infallibility. Or an Anglican phase because you like pretty prayers that are well-ordered. Um, we can become obsessed with these little phases thinking that we're going to find the Holy Grail. When Jesus Christ did not say, uh, come to uh, the, the Lutheran church down the road, or come to the Anglicans, or come to a movie, or come to a Bible study, he said, come to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. Come to me. Not the fads. The, here's the thing. They'll always let you down. 
And sometimes if you get so into a fad and you feel like you have to justify it to everybody, that you, you start pretending that you're satisfied when you're really not. And then you add duplicity to ambivalence. And it's just all a mess. Don't we do this? We, we search in vain amongst these tin kingdoms. Uh, and what we gain there amounts to, uh, quoting Johnny Cash, an empire of dirt. We need something more. We need the kingdom of the heavens. We need what Jesus had. And he wills for us to discover this kingdom, God's perfect plan and perfect world, which has the power to loose us, to loose us so that we can finally have the privilege of selling out. The kingdom of heaven, which is the power uh, to sell out, is seen most clearly at the cross. Because at the cross, uh, we see, to use the language of this parable, that God is like the man who searches for treasure. And God is like the merchant who is hunting for a pearl. And you are the treasure, and you are the pearl, and he is willing to sell everything, to empty himself, to purchase us back, his image bearers back, from their chosen disgrace. And when I am loved like that, really and truly loved, then I'm free. I'm free to sell out. I'm free to give away. Because I don't have anything to prove anymore. I never really did. Do you remember the 1984 love ballad by Survivor, entitled The Search is Over? You should. I, I mean, I still love you if you don't. But it's autobiographical. The song details the end of this particular singer's quest for fame, one night stands, and false glory, because he discovered somebody who loved him. And the lyrics, you know, I was living for a dream, loving for a moment, taking on the world, that was just my style. Now I look into your eyes and I can see forever. The search is over. You were with me all the while. When he discovered love, he was able to sell out. And how much more when we discover a love that never dies. The ever-loving king of heaven says to us, your search is over. I'm here. I'm here in the word. And I'm here in the water which will flow over a beloved family member's scalp. And I'm here in the bread and in the wine. And I'm here to meet you, to say to you uh, that you, my children, can sell out. You can sell out. You can sell out the shiny things to which we've been clinging to for self-definition. We can sell out all of our endless spiritual quests that keep us running in circles, and we can sell out those uh, wicked drives which cripple us and our neighbors and God's good world. So may we be filled to our toes with the exuberance of the kingdom of heaven, and may the devil take the hindmost. Amen.